Welcome to The Other Side of Darkness, an episodic Seinfeld parody story that follows Jerry, George, Elaine, and Kramer on a dark and mysterious journey inspired by the work of David Lynch. The Other Side of Darkness is produced by Signpeaks. I'm Jesse, also known as Signpeaks, your host and narrator. You're listening to phase one of this podcast, in which I'll be speaking with cast and crew members from Seinfeld, sharing their stories and memories from the show. Phase two, the series itself, begins this fall. This week, I'm speaking with John Apicella. John is one of just 13 actors who made appearances in both the Seinfeld and Twin Peaks universes. He had a guest role as the refrigerator repairman in the Seinfeld season three episode, The Tape, and joined Twin Peaks in season two as Jeffrey Marsh, the sinister husband of Evelyn. You'll also be surprised to learn that John made an elated appearance in another David Lynch project, but I'll let him tell you that himself. Stick around to the end of the show for this week's musical guest, Jacob Zuko. Now, here's John Apicella. John, thank you so much for giving me some time today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. It is a pleasure to have you. Um, my listeners and my followers online are going to be thrilled to hear from you because, uh, as I mentioned to you when we first uh, linked up, you are one of 13 actors uh, who can claim credits both on Twin Peaks and Seinfeld, the two shows that my, uh, my fellow fans are completely obsessed with. So you're part of a a pretty cool fraternity. And to learn more about you, John, I'd like to start all the way at the beginning uh, because you've got a career in film and television that goes back uh, basically four decades. I'd like to know, how did you get your start as an actor? Uh, well, I was um, I was kind of touched from a very early age. you know. So I was one of those kids that when people would come over to the house, my parents would make me come out and sing because they're, oh, Jack loves to sing. My parents call me Jack. <laughs> Jack loves to sing and of course, it was torture, but uh, I'd eventually do it. And then when I was a little older and we moved to the suburbs, um, I became a uh, an impresario, and I would uh, put on shows and blackmail and and threaten all of my friends into being part of uh, a show that we do. The garage door would open, would be our big curtain, and we'd mostly just do uh, excerpts from Mad Magazine acted out. And uh, uh, a little in high school, and then acting in college, and. Uh, I uh, worked in radio for a while in both Phoenix and Lake Tahoe uh, with the progressive album-oriented rock stations of, of the time doing radio theater, uh, actually. And at Lake Tahoe, I think I probably had the last staff of actors. I actually was able to hire four actors to be part of our staff. And we had uh, regular, regular radio theater and specialties and comedy shows and things like that. And uh, that ended in the late 70s and I came to Hollywood uh, because I had a CETA job, a CETA, I forget what it stood for, it was some federal program to uh, provide uh, employment to people emerging into the workforce. And uh, that got me into a company called the Public Advertising Council and I was producing and writing and producing uh, public service ads, mostly uh, a little more on the left wing side, the stuff that would get turned down by the ad council you know, handgun control and uh, uh, handicap rights and things like that. And somewhere along the way, I started doing, uh, I, I was introduced to Gary Austin, who's a, a fairly renowned improv teacher and, and the founder of the troupe, The Groundlings. Oh, yeah. Here in, uh, in, in Hollywood. And uh, I worked with Gary for a few years. And at some of his, every once in a while, he'd have a, a showing, you know, an invited demonstration of what we've been working on. And at one of those, a casting director saw me and brought me in for Benson. And uh, I got that job and that was my beginning. That was uh, how I started uh, my first, that was my first professional job, which was actually shot in a studio exactly catty corner from where my first apartment in Los Angeles was. Oh, no kidding. Short commute then. It was very short and, uh, and it was sweet. I always wonder what went on on the other side of that wall. And I found out in detail. That is really cool. And that's, uh, it's interesting because I saw Benson in your credits and um, I know that maybe five or 10 years before he created Seinfeld, Jerry had a, uh, a brief role on that show. I think a repeated yeah. appearance. I don't remember how large it was, but yeah, it's a, it's a small world. And uh, just a side note, I'm really interested to hear that you put together radio plays early in your career um, because mm -hmm. that's part of what this podcast is. Once I'm done uh, recording these guest interviews, I'm putting together a radio play uh, with a, a large cast of voice actors, and it is difficult. So I totally respect the work that you uh, that you did there. It's no no small task. 
No, it isn't, but it's it's great fun. And, you know, as Stan Freebird used to demonstrate, you can do things in radio that aren't are either incredibly expensive or impossible to do in uh, in a visual medium. Exactly. And, uh, it's uh, it's interesting. The podcast environment has really revived uh, the idea of radio theater. I think people all over the country are picking up on it again, which is nice. You know, I doubt it'll ever regain it's uh, you know where it was at its high point but uh it's nice that it isn't dying out that it's being uh, it's it may be on life support but it's, there's a strong heartbeat there yeah i totally agree and you know i and i wonder too how much 2020 kind of played into that uh people not getting the chance to get together and you know do live theater yeah. or video production or what have you and, and finding uh alternate means to do that that was at least my motivation and you know um, a lot of people and sort of many many actors and writers and other other uh, creative uh types have done a lot of zoom readings over the years but uh, or over the year over the year and a half but uh zoom readings you can only do so many of them and you can only do so you know they're they're limited in what you can do and by by their nature and so it's really freeing to get rid of the visuals and just concentrate on the uh, the sounds the words and uh you know the environments and you have a lot more freedom than you do over a zoom kind of broadcast yeah i totally agree and I, i'm i'm learning that as i go along so it's it's exciting stuff john i'd like to jump to 1991 that's the year that uh, my folks are going to be most interested in uh in that year you had guest roles on both seinfeld and twin peaks um production wise uh getting on set and shooting that which of those came first you know, I can't say that I really remember. 1991 was a long time ago, and I haven't been able to dig up any, you know, I, like most people, I, different points in my life, I've kept a journal for a while here and there, but I can't really say which was first. Uh, I think Seinfeld was first, but that's just a gut, just a gut reaction. Sure. Okay. Well, we can talk about that one first. You know, um, I mean, what, something in 1991, uh, it's, it, it was a long a ways time back. ago. Yeah, yeah, no, I know, I uh, I feel you. Um, so, so you know, when I when I was starting out, I thought I, I would meet older actors, you know, who would say, "Oh no, I don't remember doing that. Do I do that? Well, I don't remember doing that." And I think, well, God, I'm never gonna forget, you know, what times I worked on network shows. And mm -hmm. but you know, as the years go by, <laughs> they pile up, you know, and and eventually, you just, I really, I was on that. <laughs> you sure it was me? Wasn't yeah. the guy that looks like me? Uh huh. 90 credits 75 percent of the time when someone recognizes me on the street i quickly realize they're mistaking me for another <laughs> rotund bald actor so oh wow that's hilarious well let's just start with seinfeld then just for the sake of it um Great. so 1991 this is a uh, third season of this show uh the first season was very short and from what i understand at that point in history seinfeld was still kind of trying to find its audience it was doing okay in the ratings, but it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't the number one show in America the way it no, was when it went no, out. There's nowhere um, near it. They were, they were, yeah, at that point, they were still not sure they were going to get uh, any renewal. They didn't know quite where they were at. Things were not looking terrible. Their numbers were picking up a little, but they were nowhere near, you know, where they were going to be. Exactly. Um, so they were still finding their way and really concentrating on the quadru on, on the, on the quartet. Yeah. On the lead quartet and their relationships. So it was really kind of a, a, a quiet, unhurried set. You know, huh. there, there weren't a lot. It wasn't mobs of people around. That week, as a matter of fact, it was only me and uh, uh, acquaintance of mine, uh, Ping Lo, yes. uh, were the only two guests on the show that week. And I think there was one other person that had a, had a featured line or something, and that was it. But that, those were back in the days when they'd hire you for a, a three-camera show you'd get hired for the whole week. So you'd be there from the first table read to the end of the uh, the end of the week. Now uh, you get a job like that. They'll bring you in, you know, the day before. They'll, they'll bring you in basically the day of camera blocking and, you know, you'll have one day of rehearsal and, and then you do it. So that's, it's a different, different process now. So I got to hang around, you know, I only had one scene. So in, for the rest of the time, I hang around and watch, and yeah. uh, so it was it was very enjoyable to watch. David Steinberg directed that episode, and he was a hero of mine. So I got to hang out with him a little, and we went to lunch together, and that was you know really a thrill and very enjoyable for me. And he was a wonderful director, and and great fun to work with, and very you know open to uh, to the unexpected, and to uh, he's one of those guys uh, like Lynch that who 
are very open and attentive to mistakes yeah. that turn out to be gold mines in disguise. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I, I was rewatching actually your scene with Jerry uh, this morning, preparing for the interview, and it's a really funny scene, and it's really relatable too. Like I, I don't know about everybody, like, but for me certainly, there are times in my life where I'll have someone doing a job for me, and they'll know a lot about what they do, and they're very enthusiastic about it. Um, mm -hmm. And it's not that I'm not interested in it, but it's something that I know nothing about. Like the guy yeah. that does my lawn, he'll bring me out once a week and look at the grass and say, now it's just, it's just high enough for the the sunlight to get down to where it, I'm like, great, do whatever you got to do. I trust <laughs> you. And that's like the vibe that you were giving Jerry. And it's, it's such a fun scene. And you really brought a lot more to it than I think a guest uh, actor who came on the show really had to, like you brought more to the character than there was just in the lines alone. Um, how did that come about? Like, was that, were you making your own decisions as, a, as an actor with the dialogue or were you getting some uh, direction from David Steinberg? No, I don't recall getting a lot of, a lot of direction. I think, you know, the shows like that, especially comedies that are run by comedians, if you know mm -hmm. what I mean. I mean, plenty of television comedies that seem to be run by people that don't quite understand how humor works. Yes. Seinfeld was far from that. You know, they really were a bunch of pros. So they all had, they all went way back in one way or another. Uh, uh, Jason had a long stage career, even at that point. Oh yeah. Julie Louise Dreyfus uh, was, you know, of course from, had a few years on Saturday Night Live mm -hmm. and uh, Michael on Fridays. Right, with Saturday Larry. Night Live's uh, rival. Mm -hmm. at the time. And I had met Michael slightly at a function because I knew a couple of the other people on Fridays were, were good friends. And uh, I think he's the only one I had met before. And of course, I was familiar with Jerry's comedy. Right. Uh, although, frankly, at that point, I had not seen the show. So the first episode I saw was sitting in the makeup room before we began uh, taping the show. They were running a previous episode or they were running an unaired previous episode for the audience and it was the um uh the the parking structure the, the, episode the, yeah yeah where they was that the one where they're in the parking garage or the they're one in the parking where, garage and they spend yeah. the entire episode trying to find their car uh that's that's actually my number two all-time uh it's, favorite it's, episode it's, it's one of the group it's a great one it's a great introduction so yeah. for, for that to be the first one to see you know uh i really you, you could see a unique sensibility and uh just a wonderful sense of adventure you know of of like really old like old-fashioned and the best you know old school kind of comedy where they would just get themselves in jams that they could have to find a way out of and uh always a, a kind of wonderful twist at the end frequently where the a and b stories would kind of mush into each other in an unexpected way and it was it was great i was very uh, uh i was i thought, oh this is a great show yeah yeah what was your impression just overall of uh i mean working with obviously you had lines with jerry so you were doing table reads rehearsals and then shooting and i'm guessing larry i don't know how much his involvement was scene to scene when they're actually shooting but i'm sure he was there for the table read and everything what was your impression of them as showrunners yeah as i recall he was there for the table read. he was in the room so he was one of the people that you know approved my casting yeah and uh so you know i guess he liked what i was doing uh we didn't this talk much i also knew him from fridays mm -hmm. as a you know just as an actor so i didn't i hadn't met him i didn't know you know what a unique and, and brilliant mind he had but you know he was very kind of quiet and serious and uh not a jokester yeah you know he's he stayed real focused and he made you know great decisions and one thing that was really interesting that impressed me right away on the table read is they would read a line and would get a laugh or something and then either he or jerry would say you know that's really an elaine line oh go, yeah get that to elaine huh <laughs> and uh and he he jerry would do that throughout the week you know he'd get to another point where he'd some big laugh line and he'd give it to one of the other actors yeah and uh you know that's just shows a kind of a smarts that you don't see a lot in uh show business yeah, exactly. Of where his strengths were and and how building them up built the whole show up. So it was huh. it was impressive, and they were they were uh, obviously really trying to figure out what was keeping them from being a bigger hit than they already were, and they were doing it. They were mm -hmm. figuring it out. That's cool. That's and I know that that was around the time, just knowing the history of the show, where Jason, Julia, and Michael were beginning to kind of speak up after the first two seasons where every once in a while one would feel like they didn't get enough in an episode. 
Mm -hmm. you know, so I think it got to the point in one episode where Jason wasn't even in the episode and he came to Jerry and Larry and said, Hey, if you, if you want to leave me out again, just leave me out for good. And that, you know, Jerry and Larry listened to them and decided to start writing for all four instead of just them as supporting roles to Jerry. And it's really cool to, to see how that plays out in real time with the integrity of, you well, know, it's, okay. It's nice to know, uh, that's interesting to know that that was, that was the, uh, you know, I was not aware of that background. And so it's interesting to know that they not only did that, but they did it so wholeheartedly that they did it really creatively and uh, weren't doing it out of obligation. It seems yeah. they were realizing how it was strengthening the show by finding a little more for them to do. Yeah. Okay. So I want to now shift over to uh, Twin Peaks, which you shot, I believe, in the same year. Um, this was in the show's second season, towards the end of that season. And I'm not really sure when you shot that, how much of season two had aired yet. Uh, but had you been following the show? Were you kind of familiar with the story? I was. Oh, I've been a David Lynch fan for many years. So oh, good. it was, you know, since Eraserhead. Yeah. So I was very excited when it came on the air and I was delighted with it i just i thought that first season was just great it was like nothing else on television it was like a, an art house film uh, shot like a high budget tv show some terrific actors on it and one that i knew as a matter of fact Sherilyn finn had been in the first feature film i was ever in uh, uh, a movie called uh, just one of the guys yeah it ran for a long time on on uh, mtv and comedy central and uh, so has a surprisingly uh, enthusiastic cult audience. Right. And uh, she played one of the teenagers on that. It was one of the very first things she did, I think. Wow. Yeah. I, oh, God, I love Sherilyn so much. And it's such a cool person, too. Uh, I follow her on social media, and it's, it's really nice to see just her as a, as, as a genuine yeah. non-Hollywood, like as far from stuck up as you could get. And like yeah. everyone, I mean, she was of all the joys of Twin Peaks season three, I think her coming back, you know, just was just so fulfilling. It was so delightful. Yes. To see her, uh, come back. And in, in a strange, that I mean, the, what, the narrative trail of her story in the third is like, where is that? Is that in the real world? Is that? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, anyway, she's about the only person that I am can, can uh, offhand that I, that I uh, had met or encountered before doing the show. And mm -hmm. of course, this show was shot uh, with a high level of secrecy. It was one of the first shows to probably since um, JR got shot. So uh, protective of the pages. When I read for it, uh, I was given uh, one page, I think. So I had no idea what the role was other than beyond that one uh, page of dialogue. And throughout the three episodes I did, I think I saw maybe nine pages. Mm -hmm. Of the script, each of which had my name stamped in big letters. Uh huh. If I tried copying it or giving it to anyone, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd get busted right away. Oh, Although man. I wouldn't, that's, you know, would never do that. Yeah. Uh, too much fun to keep it a secret. <laughs> exactly. But uh, I believe uh, from what I've heard, Kyle was pretty much the only person, the only cast member that would get a whole script. Everybody else would just get their scenes. And sometimes even with, you know, the stuff, you know, they're not in, in the scene redacted out uh, just to keep uh, gossip from uh, emanating from any direction. Yeah. You never know. You know, frankly, you can't, you're not used to protecting your scene pages that much so that if somebody was really intent, they could probably grab a script and, and, and make off with it. But Right. Well, and, and with things as, you know, the importance of secrets on that show and the importance of mystery. Um, yeah, I could totally see why they behave that way. And I think it's honestly, I think it's a good way to do it with actors oh, yeah. anyway, so that you as a character don't have information that your character wouldn't have. So uh, the scenes were just me and uh, Annette uh, McCarthy mm -hmm. and James, James uh, Marshall. Marshall. And uh, so that was it. And, and we shot it all at a house owned by Michael Jackson. I did Jackson. not know that. I don't know if it was Michael Jackson personally. I think that's what they said. Then I heard it was maybe the Jackson family or he just, yeah, it was basically a family house that he owned. Hmm. Whenever any Jacksons were in town, they would stay there. And in between times, they would rent it out whenever they could for shoots. So it was all this lovely kind of Georgian style, Southern California mansion. Yeah. We were there over, I think, two days. Mm -hmm. That was That was it. Wow. And yeah. they, one night after I had like a 12.30 a.m. audio sh uh, call to go into MTM Studios and uh, 
record some audio, which was a lot of fun, actually. That was, uh, I think I know that scene. It's where you're fighting with Evelyn. Um, and yeah. the way that was used, it was James wakes up in the middle of the night and hears the two of you. The screaming going on in the house. Yeah, exactly. They uh, had um, two costumes. I had two costumes. Yeah. For the show. It was just two days. Mm -hmm. One was the coming home where you just spot me from very great distance wearing a suit. It was a beautiful woolen suit that I bought. They sold, oh. sold to me for like a tenth of what it probably cost it had been you know because when you do a tv show not only do they put you in clothes but they tailor them so that they look good on you yeah so if you see a suit you like uh, it always helps to ask if you can buy it and they'll just give it to you or they'll give it to you at a nice rate if, uh -huh. uh, for the costumer it's more money she can use to he or, he or she can use to uh buy more costumes so yeah. they're happy enough to do that so the, anyway I, I wore that suit for quite a few years after the uh, other thing I wore was a um, it was a tracksuit, a tracksuit and a and a and a satin jacket, which was very comfortable. But I already had a tracksuit, so uh -huh. that's that's actually it's one one of my followers wanted me to ask about that tracksuit, and and they, their question was was it yours or did, was it the war? And I figured wardrobe department provided that for you. You know, I don't recall. It's possible they asked me, "Do you have a tracksuit?" Because I don't know when I got that tracksuit. I bought it for a, um, a student film that oh. I think Ryan O'Neill's son was directing. Huh. And he asked me if I had a tracksuit. I said, no. He said, would you buy one? Because <laughs> he didn't have budget for any costumes. So I bought a tracksuit. Huh. Uh, I've worn it a few times since. Right. But I don't recall if they asked me if I had one or if it was my own. My guess is it wasn't. Tracksuit's a pretty simple thing to come across and i think they probably so i don't remember was it what color was it do you recall it was uh i've got a photo of it right here let me pull this up i just posted it this uh this morning it was a red tracksuit red and black uh, uh, you can kind of see it it's yeah right there oh yeah okay yeah definitely not mine <laughs> i would buy one much less gaudy uh-huh yeah <laughs> Awesome. Um, so it's my understanding that at that point in season two, uh, Lynch and Mark Frost were, a, they were kind of hands off uh, with the day to day production. Were they on set? Did you meet them at all in the process? Well, I don't know if I met Frost. I don't believe I did. I know at that point I did not meet David, although Joanna Ray, the uh, casting director, told me that he had, you know, he looks at everybody and he passes mm -hmm. on all the casting. So he approved of my casting. Yeah. The day I went actually to the uh, to her office, it was just in the waiting room. Was just me and Van Dyke Parks. Really? Yeah, and um, they were keeping us waiting for a long time. So Van Dyke and I started talking, and we he was just kind of getting. Do you know who Van Dyke Parks is? I'm familiar with the name, and I'm checking a photo right now because I know I'll. Uh... The very major lyricist and songwriter of mm -hmm. uh, the '70s. Oh, I see. Okay, so he's written for the Beach Boys. You too, Randy. Well, exactly. Okay. He wrote basically. He was the librettist for uh, for Brian Wilson's Smile. Gotcha. So all of that wonderful poetry in uh, those great wacky lyrics in Smile. That was all yeah. Van Dyke. And Van Dyke was a guy who brought uh, sort of a reggae sensibility, you know, to uh, American pop music. So he's still out there touring. I ran into him, as a matter of fact, in uh, Berkeley uh -huh. uh, at the uh, Women's Club Hotel there, which. Uh, this great old late 19th century structure, early 20th century uh, mission style uh, building in uh, Berkeley. I saw him in the breakfast room. My wife actually spotted him in the breakfast room. She recognized him, but I didn't bother. But later on, we just happened to be in the lobby, one of the upper lobbies together at the same time. So I said hello. And he remembered the uh, encounter. And he gave me here, I pulled this out. He gave me uh, one of his um, business cards. Uh -huh. Mr. Van Dyke Parks apologizes for his behavior on the night of face. <laughs> To write what night <laughs> and sincerely regrets any damage or inconvenience he may have caused and then his gmail address oh my god that's awesome and i'm looking at him now i i, I remember now his role uh on twin peaks as, as a lawyer i think for the villain leo right. johnson yeah so we both got cast it was a it was a good day for both of us oh that's awesome so overall so and i you know i'm trying to figure in my mind kind of who the the major players uh on the crew were on set and i know that one episode uh was directed by caleb Deschanel. yeah caleb and, directed one of those 
Yep, and then I think U- I, I'm, I'm going to butcher Idel. the pronunciation, but yes, Uli Idel, uh, Israeli uh, director, I think. Yes, yes, directed the other one. Uh, how was the how what was the production like? It was very straightforward, you know, really high level professional set. I mean, what can you say? It was Twin Peaks. Yeah, they were very uh, deliberate because that's David Lynch's style. He takes mm-hmm. a lot of time setting up his shots and prepping. Uh, I got to watch him. On, um, he hired me when I did meet him. Uh, he hired me for uh, the role of the priest in an execution scene in Lost Highway. It was later cut. Oh, oh really? Yeah. But this is this is David Lynch. I got a phone call one day, and I pick it up and Hi, John. This is David Lynch. <laughs> I just got to tell you, you did great work on that movie, but we had to cut the scene. Oh, really? It, he called me personally. To yeah. make sure I would come to the screening, you know, that and that, that I wouldn't be surprised, you know, not to see myself and that he appreciated my work. And, you know, maybe we'll put in the DVD extras. I hope we can. Wow. Um, do you remember, was it was it Bill Pullman's character that was going to be executed? No, uh, it was another character. Bill Pullman uh, is in his cell. Mm-hmm. And he hears the execution. Oh. Electrocution occurring in the prison. And, and that, right. I think, in the script that kind of frightens him or terrifies mm-hmm. him enough that somehow releases those energies that transform him into Balthazar Getty. Right, right. Okay, <clears throat> that's fascinating. Uh, because like the, I know that one of the theories to the ending is that the entire Balthazar Getty storyline was, I don't know, the dying synapses of his mind as he was being electrocuted in the electric chair or something like that. And uh, I, was, I was fishing for confirmation of that. Of that. I suppose, Cons- you know, that uh, logical... Uh, explanations are so beside the point. Oh yeah, I know. I 100% agree so when it comes to it really, It's fun to talk about that stuff, but it really, it doesn't really matter. It's him mining his own dream world, I think, in a way, because yes, he, especially, in, I think, in the in the third season of Twin Peaks, there are episodes where he describes and reproduces the environment of a dream better than any anyone I think I've I've ever seen. The combination of tangible reality and impossibility, you know, banging against each other. He's very in touch with that. He's really has this wonderful ability to evoke the same kind of sense of both the familiar and the unfamiliar uh, interacting in a dream state. A hundred percent. Yeah. And that's actually a skill that I think he passed on to his daughter, Jennifer Lynch, as well. She wrote The Secret Diary of Laura Palmer, which I've been reading lately. And I, I get maybe she just learned it from watching you know, the way that he writes, but uh, reading that book, Laura describes dreams. And I mean, it's 100% the way dreams go, not the way movies typically portray dreams, but the fog coming up. And, you know, it's a fascinating thing to see too, because you think, well, dreams, they're in my head. My dreams must be unique from everyone else's dreams. But there is a, there, there does seem to be some consistency of that dream realm between people, even people of very different types and different cultures. Mm-hmm. The dream realm has some uh, qualities that that we all seem to share. Yeah, very mysterious and strange and eerie. But uh, exactly, and wonderful that he's got his finger on that. He's so good at uh, uh, evoking that. Yeah, yeah. Well, in the way that dreams, you know, there's never really a beginning to a dream. You just you're there. Yeah. Uh, that's that's the way you feel. Walk, you know, watching any scene, you know, in a Lynch film. What's the context? Who knows? It's not really about that. Like you said, it's about what's behind that. And that's what he does so well. Yeah. And um, the uh, uh, although one of the amazing things, too, about the, that last season is that the just the act of getting all of those people back after 30 yes. years, it, it was astounding. And it was wonderful to see them from a from an Alta Cocker's point of view. It was so encouraging to see, you know, all these people who were young and vibrant in, in the original show being old and vibrant in, in the third season. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was a, it was an amazing accomplishment, uh, accomplishment really to bring everybody, all those people back together. And mm-hmm. uh, every week was a, another, you know, load of delight and surprises on yeah. how these people had, had, uh, had weathered the past quarter century. Exactly. Especially those that gave us what we got in season three before they passed away, like Miguel Ferrer and, uh, and the log lady, of course, uh, mm-hmm. Catherine such a treasure that we were able to get that from them before we lost them. Absolutely. Yeah. And that, actually that, that probably one of the most touching moments in any call of David Lynch's over was that moment when uh, uh, the sheriff is at the sheriff sits at his table and he sees the, 
the chair across from the, the log lady was sitting in with a bouquet of red roses on it. I think so. It was either it was either uh, Sheriff Truman, uh, of course, Frank Truman or uh, Hawk. I don't remember now. It's been a while since I've seen it. But it was uh, I brought it. You know, I mean, I, I almost started blubbering. Cause, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I cheered when yeah. Well, and when Ed and Norma, you know, had that moment in, I guess it was episode 16, where Otis Redding is playing in the background and they have that kiss after so long. I mean, I, I was clapping uh, in my living room when that happened. It was fantastic. And again, um, too, he, you know, with Twin Peaks, with the original Twin Peaks, he revolutionized uh, television drama. Everything was affected by it in, in a way, if not just technically and uh, from a point of view of what you could get away with narratively. Yeah but really just how adventurous the style was and how uh, really moved TV from that bland lighting mm -hmm. to much more nuanced, just chiaroscuro yeah. uh, lighting that was much more like a feature, although they found ways to do it you know, much quicker and, and cheaper than you could afford to do it on TV yeah. uh, to, to, to get the same effect as a, as a feature. And uh, I think he did the same thing with the season three i think uh that's gonna i think it's already showing actually and uh, a lot of influence and in, uh what people think they could get away with and or you know how far they can go creatively yeah absolutely yeah i mean seasons one and two i think definitely created a mold uh that not just you know your mystery of the week films or your you know your police procedurals uh but you know anything with a supernatural element to it, X-Files, uh, Lost, certainly, you know, shows were walking in Lynch's footsteps and have been for the past 25, 30 years now. And yeah, no, I, I agree. Season three is going to yeah, be the same thing. Yeah, some obvious like that, and then some that you wouldn't think, you, it wouldn't occur to you necessarily that it's, that it's Twin Peaks or David Lynch's uh, influence, but, it, you know, there is some, there are things that he uh, influenced that are not at all Twin Peaks-like, uh, but that would be different from what they are if he had not done what he did i agree yeah it's all over the the television landscape for sure oh, but i i wanted to i was talking about david lynch's preparation that the scene oh yeah uh before we shot the scene we were at the old uh fifth street firehouse downtown los angeles which has been in hundreds of movies over the years and they just used it as a studio and they built rooms in the penitentiary so we're upstairs in a room that they have built to be the execution uh environment with the electric chair and a glass window with witnesses behind it and um he was lighting it and he lit the whole thing with a you know they have these lighting instruments that are like um it looks like four fluorescent tubes three or four foot fluorescent tubes a kino i think pardon i think they're called kinos a kino flow okay good i, I should probably know that but <laughs> but uh, he, he was lighting the whole scene with two of those and finding the just where exactly he wanted because most of the light was going to be reflected off of the set you know so it, it, there's a glow coming from everywhere yeah and he had you know the room had been painted this sort of institutional puke green mm -hmm. and he wasn't quite happy with the way the reflections were working and so he had one of his assistants go down to the bodega on the corner and buy all the cleaning sprays and solutions he could find wow. and bring them back up. And David spent a good hour and a half with his assistant. His assistant had a little dry mop, a little mop. And Dave would just like go in a corner and he'd spray around in a corner and he'd see settle, you know, spread that out. And he'd spread it out and he'd look at it again and he'd say, let me try this stuff. And he did. And he just took his time. Yeah. He took as much time as it needed to get the look exactly where it was. And that is what the difference between an artist and just a competent professional filmmaker, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's so intuitive. Yeah. And there's no place where it's just, that's good enough. Yeah. You know, it's just, he's going to keep figuring out what he wants it to be until it looks just the way he wants. And uh, that was a, I mean, that's an inspirational lesson to see that. Uh, and, and I think that, you know, all the people that work with David Lynch have witnessed that over and over again. And that is one of the reasons why he, uh, you know, if you look at the crews, uh, the department head certainly, and many crew members on all of his work, they there's a lot of repeats. Mm -hmm. He's got a lot of people that he works with steadily and he has worked throughout throughout his career and they are 
devoted to him and you know uh, will they'll uh, move heaven and earth to get things uh where he wants them to be yeah and it's um it's a pretty cool thing to witness yeah no it, it totally is um okay so I'm, I'm glad that you told me that about lost highway that was something i didn't know and now i'm gonna try and track down i don't know like you said if that's on the dvd somewhere uh maybe i'll search youtube and you see ever, you ever see it let me know I will. I'll send it to you if I can find it. So then I can assume, since you are an avid Twin Peaks fan, that you have gone back and watched uh, your episodes um, at since you shot them. When uh, the third episode, when the third season was uh, set to begin, uh, Joni, my wife Joni, and I, you know, got a Showtime subscription, uh -huh. and then watched all the uh, first season. Yeah, first and second season. I mean, the first, the, the, first the original season. run. Yeah. The run. Uh, which was great. I hadn't watched it since it, it aired, I suppose. Uh, so it was great fun to watch it again. And uh, so we watched that. We watched uh, Fire Walk with Me, mm -hmm. which so is we felt fully prepared for the uh, for the return. Yeah, yeah, you got to. So you did that all at the same time that I did because I didn't actually begin watching Twin Peaks until I heard that they were making a third season, and all of my coworkers were raving about it. Um, I even missed the beginning of the return. They would come in every you know Monday morning and say, "Could you believe what we saw last night?" And so I said, "Okay, I got to get on Netflix and watch the show." And uh, I think I watched uh, all. I guess there was roughly twenty-eight episodes in the first run. I think I watched them all in the span of three weeks, maybe, and then Fire Walk with me, and then caught up uh, on the return. And yeah, I can't imagine being in the early '90s and having to wait every week to find out what happens next. That's but you know that's partly that's that's part of the dynamic that makes those things so exciting. Yeah, waiting for the next episode along with everybody else. That's what you know. Game of Thrones. Mm -hmm. All the same sort of thing. HBO doesn't release a whole season at a time. Exactly. They, they do this old-fashioned thing of showing an episode every week, so it really does build excitement. And it's not a bad thing. It gives you a week to digest what you've seen. It doesn't all become a mush. Mm -hmm. in your head as it does sometimes when a new when a show comes on and you just binge it yeah and although there are joys to binging too i mean there are things to watching it all at once as if you're watching a 43-hour movie or something yeah yeah which is uh from what i understand that's how uh the audience at con film festival saw the return uh, uh, because it was i think it was presented episode was to episode as, it was written originally right. written as one script yeah it was this i seen a picture of it it was this thick it's That's brilliant. Yeah. yeah. And um, I don't know if we rewatched the third season or not before we finally uh, let our uh, Showtime subscription go. Uh -huh. But there's rumors that there might be a fourth season. Exactly. I'm following those rumors very closely. And I mean, no one knows for sure right now, but Lynch is doing something. He's not I saying what. Well, I know he is. I mean, he's he's doing something. Some Some of it might not be anything that we're going to see. Yeah, uh, but you know he's an artist and he's a he's a musician, I guess. Mm -hmm. He's a painter. Poet. Yeah, yeah. So I hope he's up to something in the realm of of uh, visual entertainment because yeah. uh, I, I I love his I love his work. I love his sensibility. I love his aesthetic, and uh, it's an adventure. Everything mm -hmm. he does, you know, it's an adventure to be a part of. As an audience member, you know, you don't feel like you feel it, it, it has a much more personal connection to his work than there is for most filmmakers. Yeah. And I feel like he's writing just for you sometimes. Yeah. Oh, man, that's that's so true. So, John, I'd like to take a minute and take a look at some of the projects that you've been involved with uh, in the years since uh, your appearances on Twin Peaks and Seinfeld. One is I noticed just looking at your your filmography that you appeared on The New Adventures of Old Christine with Julia Louis-Dreyfus, I think in like 2006. I haven't seen that episode, but did you share a scene with Julia? Did you get to I interact with her at all? A, it was just a short scene uh, at the end of the episode in which the episode was about she and wanda sykes are going to get married for and then uh i don't know if wanda's character on the show was gay or not but julius's was not so she's uh christine's plan is to marry wanda sykes and it's for some legal reason there's some mm -hmm. you know, non-romantic reason why they're going to get married and i play the judge that uh is going to marry them gotcha okay so it's um, in my chain the judge's chambers 
So it's just that one one scene with me and Julia and Wanda Sykes. I hope I'm remembering this correctly. It's been mm -hmm. it's only been uh, that one's been I guess 15 years. Is it 15 yeah. years ago? Yeah. Yeah. So I should remember it better, but uh, I don't necessarily. But it was great. Uh, it was great to uh, get to uh, meet and and work with uh, both of them. I'm, you know, two of the most talented people in the business. So it was great to uh, to hang out with them a little while. Yeah, and I noticed too that uh, the last. I don't know if this was the last film you worked on, but the last one that's been released was the uh, The Call of the Wild, which, and I noticed that Michael Horse was in that. Did you get to run into him on set? No, I, I, would, I was a part of a uh, very late in the game shoots. They were doing uh, shooting on, I guess, revisions or things to tweak the movie. So the movie okay. had been substantially shot. I'm sure all of Michael Horse's scenes were all in the can already. Uh, I was involved in one big scene in... I forget the what what town in Alaska it's supposed to be, but uh, it's where you know I play a steamboat captain, mm -hmm. and uh, the steamboat it's like the last steamboat to uh, the mines gotcha. before winter comes. So I had a little dialogue, and I was yelling all aboard, and you know they shot all this stuff. But what ended up in the movie was actually on a very long shot. You can kind of see what is probably an animated version of my body. Oh. Way in the distance uh, on the on the bridge of the ship with a woman. Uh-huh. And that, that scene didn't actually occur. We didn't shoot that. So it had to be created for that shot. Wow. So I'm, at least I'm still technically in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, you don't, I, I, you hear my, um, you hear my voice off camera saying all aboard, you know, right. shoving off as, uh, the lawyer is uh, putting the final touches on uh, on, on the document, uh, giving the house to uh, his wife. And uh, I, I don't know exactly. I forget uh -huh. exactly what's going on in the scene. But uh, I, that's what I am. I'm, a, I'm an offstage, uh, offstage voice. Gotcha. Okay. So I didn't really meet anyone. I didn't okay. actually even bother to like sidle my way into Harrison Ford's presence because uh, we both were very busy. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, cool. Um, I got a question from, and I'm, this is why I'm glad you brought up just one of the guys earlier in the interview. Um, a follower of mine on Instagram named Dove uh, Shlomowitz asked about just one of the guys, what it was like filming that. And he asked if you are uh, a bowling fan in real life. <laughs> uh, I'm bold, but I wouldn't call myself a fan. Certainly not anywhere near like uh, the level of the character of uh, Coach Mickey. Mm -hmm. That was my first feature film film and i was uh, hired basically because uh, the director lisa gottlieb knew me from uh, a play reading organization we both belong to and then we had done quite a few play readings and workshop productions of things together as a part of this group and when she got the film she brought a certain amount of us you know well that i'd say about a third of the people in the movie kind of are part of were part of that that group and that mix so it was a great gift that she gave me to get me my sag card uh -huh. And uh, the movie was all shot in Scottsdale, Arizona. So basically, I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, and ended up in Hollywood. And my first big job, they sent me back to Phoenix, Arizona, uh, to stay at the Double Tree Inn for three weeks and mm. uh, be a part of this crowd shooting uh, a movie. Mm. And uh, it was a very collegiate atmosphere, a collegial atmosphere. It was a high school rather than collegiate. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I was there with some friends, people I already knew, uh, Robert Fieldsteel, Ari Gross, Stu Charno. And, you know, it was great to uh, be able to hang out with them, meet a bunch of new people. And uh, it, was, it was fun. It was great fun. And uh, I had uh, a friend of mine lived there in Scottsdale. And she had an extra car that she loaned me. It was this bright cherry red Ford Futura convertible. And that really, that probably made things a lot better for me because I was like the oldest guy in the group. I was the uh -huh. adult. Everybody else was in their 20s, maybe early 30s at most. And I was in my 40s at that time. And, but I had the coolest car on campus. So I got to do everything. Everybody wanted to ride with me. That's awesome. Yeah. It was a um, lucky break. <laughs> yeah. So I got another question for you. Uh, Instagram user Motored Heart uh, wanted me to ask um, about the X-Files and was it fun to be a bug monster? Um, the X-Files was, yeah, sure. It was great fun. One of the lovely things about X-Files is because like Twin Peaks, they don't give you scripts. Mm -hmm. Just get your pages. Yeah. So I just got that 
original uh, kind of interview scene with Mitch Pileggi uh, and was it? I forget who was in the scene. But anyway, it's that it was that scene. That's what I read. And that's all I knew about the part was I thought it was just going to be, you know, some middle management guy getting interviewed. You know, so I was just going to be part of the investigation. It would move on. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know till I got up to Vancouver and was given a full script that I was playing uh, the human disguise of the monster of the week. Wow. Uh, and that was a, so that was a nice surprise. And uh, it was uh, it was a lot of fun to shoot. It was two weeks of principal photography and one week of secondary of uh, second unit. And uh, it was Kim Manners last show uh, in Vancouver as director. So there was, uh, you know, that kind of a sense of a big moment was passing for them. They had, you know, this is their fifth season, I think. Hmm. So that crew had been together substantially that same crew for uh, five seasons and Kim had directed a third to a half of the shows or something, a large number of the shows. They had gotten to the point where I believe on one day we did 86 setups. Wow. One day. So for anybody who knows how things work in the TV world, 86 setups is kind of superhuman. Uh huh. But they knew it. They just knew how to light. Yeah. Know? how to light it they knew everybody knew where to go they would light a scene and you know it's so many shows they say you do the rehearsal and they say okay let us light it go back to your trailer and you know hours could go by before they call you back again mm -hmm. I, I sometimes wouldn't get halfway to the trailer and they say oh, oh okay we're ready that's that's pretty incredible it is pretty incredible and especially because the show looked so good you know yeah so, so beautifully uh, uh crafted and they were leaving vancouver so this was also the second to the last show they were going to shoot in Vancouver. They shot one more, I guess, uh, after this. And that was, uh, and that was it, but, uh, it was great. You know, uh, didn't become intimate friends with anyone, but, mm -hmm. uh, got to hang out with and chat with everybody. Uh, God, refresh my old mind. Uh, Mulder was played by, uh, Fox Mulder was David Duchovny. And I, I actually have not, I'm not, intimately familiar with the x-files but you're thinking of uh david duchovny and his co-star jillian anderson. anderson yeah and they were wonderful jillian anderson's tiny tiny powerful tiny little woman uh-huh but uh you know just incredible actress and and, and presence you know she's mm -hmm. just, she's just a really attractive and i mean you know like in a humanly attractive way she's just like that's somebody i want to you know hang out with and know better she seems really intelligent and yeah decisive and rich but she was very small. So in every scene she was in, they'd have to put her on a box. Wow, I didn't know that. It's called an apple box. Yeah, an apple box. I, uh, I have a scar on my face from an apple box. I know exactly what those are. <laughs> oh, we've all been hurt by an apple box sometimes. <laughs> uh, but the apple, bo apple box is about, you know, four inches or something. Yeah, they also had what they called jilly boxes, which were two inches. So huh. That's like the minimum box that she would be on. And anything huh. she would do, she'd be up at least two more inches. Wow. And they called it a jilly box because it was Jillian's, uh, Jillian's thing. That's fascinating. Um, she anyway, was I was going to say, David was, you know, great to work with, but he was very standoffish, hmm. you know, and he didn't, didn't seem, uh, you know, he just sort of like avoided me mm -hmm. on the set for the principal photography. And then on the third week when we were shooting this, the secondary stuff, which is all, you know, just the exteriors and getting out of cars, getting into cars, you know, all kind of boring stuff. On the first night of that, I was sitting under a canopy and he came and sat down next to me and he said, oh, so how are you doing? Huh. And I said, oh, uh, great. And he said, so I just want you to know uh, when I'm working with, uh, you know, the, the opposition, I don't mm -hmm. you know, it, it helps me not to be not to know you as a person, you know. So he just came over to basically explain why he was standoffish and apologizing. And we spent the you know, rest of the evening talking about baseball. Oh, man, that is pretty cool is pretty cool well and you shared uh an episode of twin peaks with him at least one episode i don't remember if he was in both of the ones that you were in i i don't know if you would have run into him or even if you would have recognized him in costume as denise but <laughs> i don't know that i would have but you know what sure. any, any show or movie if you're not in a scene with somebody the chances that you know you're gonna run yeah. into him on the set are kind of minuscule yeah exactly yeah, yeah. I didn't really meet anybody else from uh from the real world of twin peaks mm. i was just kind of off in my own fantasy land yeah extension of it right yeah your own your own portion uh, of the story and i mean that is so cool to know though despite that that uh that you then got to return to the lynch world for uh for lost highway that's really awesome yeah um yeah. okay so 
I've got a couple of final questions for you, John, and then I'll let you get about your day. So one is, um, obviously, as I told you when I first reached out to you, uh, the listeners of this podcast are avid fans of both David Lynch and Larry David Seinfeld and everything connected to that. Obviously, both shows are giants in their respective genres. Uh, they continue to have not just a strong following, but a massive influence on television and how, how stories are told today. And you've got a unique perspective where you were on set for both shows. Given that, was there anything you noticed that kind of the two productions had in common, the way they did things, uh, the culture on set, the caliber of writing? Was there any kind of secret sauce that the two had that, that you think kind of made them what they were? Well, here's an example. I guess one day during our lunch break, I had brought something. So I just sat in the studio at the cast table after the read and everybody went off to lunch and I sat there reading and eating my lunch at the table. And Michael came in and he started, he went up to the door into Jerry's apartment and he just started practicing entering. And he would just like try this and he'd try this and he'd try that. You know, he'd tumble in, he'd come in backwards, he'd come in upside down. He was just trying all different sorts of, and that of course was like one of the hallmarks of the show is like every Kramer entrance is a little different. There's always mm -hmm. a unique, he finds a unique way to enter in every single episode. And the way he did that was by spending his lunch hour finding ways to enter all on yeah. his own, yeah. you know, nobody there. Normally I, I wouldn't have been sitting there, but it didn't bother him, he just worked uh, until he was, you know, got, got what he wanted for that session. He was good 40 minutes playing with the door. Huh. And I think that that is a, a quality that you would see with everybody else on the show and with everybody that I encountered, you know, I think, in the, in the Twin Peaks world, is that uh, responsibility, you know, to, to go the extra mile, to work a little harder than uh, is expected of you or required of you, and to go someplace that you weren't expecting to go. And I think both with Jerry's uh, and the writing crew's openness to give a good line that was a really funny line that would work better if it was delivered, that was written for Jerry, but would work better if it was delivered by Elaine. They go with it. They find ways, you know, to improve that way. And Lynch is well known for his openness on the set to the unexpected and do accidents. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's where Bob came from. Bob, right. Yeah. And that's a great lesson, you know, that so much of creativity is being open to the unexpected. You know, it's not coming up with a creative idea and reproducing it exactly the way it is in your head. It is for some artists, mm -hmm. but the much more exciting and relatable art, I think, comes out of artists that remain open to the moment and that uh, can constantly reevaluate what they're doing and recognize that sometimes what appears to be a mistake is actually two important things coming together in a way that you weren't expecting. And the artist that can have eyes open to see that and to embrace it is in a much stronger position than uh, the artists who just look at that and go, no, 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 that's not what I had in mind. Wow. So yeah. time, you know, your brain is saying no in, in your mind. Question that. Mm -hmm. you know? Question that no. That no is a resistance to something that may be exactly what you need to be embracing. Okay, that's, I mean, that's dead on. I agree 100% with that. Uh, it, it's funny, my last guest that I spoke with was uh, actress Melanie Smith, who was a, who appeared on Seinfeld. She was in the scene where George pulls down his bathing suit. She walks in on him. She's, yeah, shrinkage. Yeah, she's the shrinkage lady. And yeah. it was a similar situation uh, with what you're talking about, where in the table read, she just added a little laugh when she apologized for seeing him naked. And that was enough to kind of pivot the scene, you know, and, and make made it so memorable. And I think Larry or Peter Melman, whoever was there, was like, that, put that in there, do that again keep that in there, you know, grabbing those little notes that come out, uh, come about spontaneously and making them part of the story, which they should have been all along. And sometimes it just takes an actor doing something that comes to them naturally, you know, in character to grab that and put it on into the story. And uh, it, yeah, good on people like Lynch and, and Larry and Jerry who, who can do that and uh, don't get sucked up into the ego of, well, this is the way I wrote it and this is the way it's going to be. Yeah. Okay. That's a really cool answer. I didn't expect that, but I agree with it uh, wholeheartedly. Okay, so John, um, last question for you, and this one's kind of optional. Um, I've given everyone a chance. Uh, if there's a, a charity that you're involved with or just one that you like a lot, um, the listeners of this podcast, they tend to be pretty generous. People do a lot of fundraisers and stuff, um, just grassroots things. So if there's anything you'd like to plug or any creative projects you want people to kind of follow or something like that. I, well, I'm strangely, happy to... I've, I've been in a very unusual situation for the past uh, year and a half or so. 
and really haven't been involved in almost anything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, I, I know nobody else knows what I'm talking about. Yeah, this is that's but, so strange. But um, and so you know, normally I'm I'll have a, a play or something uh, that I'm th th that's in the offing. There just happens to be nothing at this time. So uh, if any of your listeners are um, are producers of uh, American television or anywhere, I'll travel. I have a passport. I have both an American and Canadian passport, so I can go pretty much anywhere. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm open to uh, I'm open to suggestions. So as far as uh, you know, what I would like to uh, promote, let's uh, I, Black Lives Matter. We're at a point of history where we can finally really make big changes in the way uh, America treats its African-American citizens. Uh, so I am uh, urge everybody to uh, remain steadfast and be patient and be, uh, be unwavering in our, uh, in our efforts to finally make this the country it pretends to be. That's awesome. Uh, thanks for saying that. Um, yeah, my folks are going to be on board with that. Uh, we've done last year. Uh, we did some collective fundraisers for Black Lives Matter and uh, NAACP's Legal Defense Fund. And uh, it's important, you know, to to support causes like that, not just when they're trending on the Internet. No, um, it is, but, you it know, is. to always have your heart open and always. From my point of view, you know, as a guy who's been here, been around for seven decades, mm -hmm. these things, uh, uh, moments have happened over the last, over my lifetime, where you think a change was going to happen, but it, it, it didn't happen or it didn't happen enough didn't continue. I mm -hmm. think this is different. I think we're in a different era now. And I think it's, uh, we have a real possibility to make really massive changes. So uh, I urge everybody to hang in there and, and see that it happens. You know, you're never going to get rid of all of the nastiness and unfairness of life, but this is a particular kind of nasty unfairness that uh, has gone on for far too long and, and needs to stop. So uh, I'm so happy that we're in this process. So let's keep it up, gang. Well put. Thank you, John. Before I let you go, uh, are you on social media anywhere? Are there any pages that you'd want me to link uh, for people to follow you? I'm not really on anything. I guess if you're interested, uh, you can follow the uh, my theater company. Uh, well, my theater company. I mean, I'm, I'm very possessive of it because <laughs> I've been a part of it since the beginning, and I love uh -huh. it and the people that uh, compose it. It's called the Antaeus Company, A-N-T-A-E-U-S. Uh, you can check out our uh, webpage, and there are links there to a project that we've been doing over the pandemic, which is a series of radio plays called okay. the Zip Code Plays, each taking place in a different zip code in the Los Angeles area, and all plays written by members of our uh, Antaeus uh, Playwrights Workshop. Uh, beautifully produced, beautifully acted, fun plays about, uh, and some harrowing plays about life in Los Angeles. So you can find those on either zip code plays, you can just look that up, and that'll probably, Google will probably lead you in the right direction, or go to antius.org. Okay. I'll provide a link to that, folks. If you check the show notes of this podcast when the episode's over, you can find it there. Um, that's really interesting. I'm going to check that out myself. Well, John, uh, in closing, I just want to say thank you for giving me some time today. Um, you've made at least 31,000 people that follow the fandom of these shows on my Instagram page extremely happy to get this behind-the-scenes look uh, at two of, I mean, just the coolest productions to ever grace our TV screens um, and to get your unique perspective on what made them tick and, and what made them work. Um, we're very grateful. And uh, very happy to, to talk with you today. Well, thank you uh, for the invitation. It's great to talk about it. And I'm really uh, pleased and grateful that I was part of, uh, you know, even in my small way, uh, part of these uh, really landmark shows. And uh, that if there are 31,000 people happier because of my humble contribution today, that's um, more thousands of people than I've made happy in many years. <laughs> I don't know about that, but, uh, but it's, it's good to hear that. Once again, folks, my guest today has been John Apicella. John, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks again to John for coming on the podcast. There was one question I forgot to ask during our interview, which John answered for me via email. Sue Beth Warren from the Sign Peaks Facebook group asked, quote, was Jeffrey Marsh really beating Evelyn, or was that a ruse cooked up between Evelyn and that tool who told James he was her brother to create a reason for his demise? John's response Quote, that's a good question. I don't recall us discussing that among ourselves at all, but it seems fashion to be ambiguous. I asked Caleb, side note, that's Caleb Deschanel, the episode's director, 
if he wanted any hint of Jeffrey's nasty side to be revealed in the dialogue scene. And he was clear that he wanted only the friendly car nut doofus that I was showing him. Certainly Jeffrey loses his temper and screams and throws stuff around, but there's nothing we physically witness. Whether or not he actually strikes Evelyn, there's a dark side to Jeffrey that makes it easier to see him murdered. In the world of Twin Peaks, nobody is without a shadow side. Well said. You can follow John's work with the Antaeus Theater Group at antaeus.org. That's A-N-T-A-E-U-S dot org. This week's musical guest is Jacob Zuko, an independent pop artist from Los Angeles. You can find his music on Spotify, iTunes, Bandcamp, Instagram, and TikTok. Here is Jacob Zuko with his newest single, Leave Me Alone. Gotta leave me alone 
Thanks for listening. Subscribe to The Other Side of Darkness so you won't miss the story once it begins this fall. If you enjoyed today's episode, leave us a positive rating and review on your podcasting app. Follow Sign Peaks on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok, or join our Facebook group. Visit our store at signpeaks.threadless.com. 50% of proceeds for the month of July will go to the International Rescue Committee. And if you'd like to support this series, you can visit patreon.com slash signpeaks to get early access to episodes and exclusive merchandise. Intro theme by Patrick Edwards. Mid-show theme by Ivor Bowitz. Outro theme by Robert McDonald. All links mentioned can be found in this episode's show notes. Until next time, should you need me, I'll be in the shadows. The Other Side of Darkness was made possible thanks to the backing of over 100 supporters through sites like kickstarter.com. Here are just a few of those supporters I'd like to recognize. Mike Oxmall, Wholesome Peaks, Mike Dowd, Joel Patrick Durham, David Melito, Tom Rowe, and Lucas Gillard. If you enjoy this podcast, you might also enjoy watching Owen Wilson, the first podcast dedicated entirely to everyone's favorite catchphrase-loving comedic actor. Hosts Jake Menez and Michael J. Teeter make their way through Owen Wilson's entire filmography, rating each movie, counting each wow, and bringing in guests in an effort to befriend Owen Wilson himself. Find Watching Owen Wilson on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, and at watercooler.com. You can also listen to Mike Dowd, the voice of Kramer on this podcast, on his own podcast, Welcome to Twin Speaks. Here's Mike and co-host Janine with more. Hi, I'm Mike. And hello, I'm Janine. And this is Welcome to Twin Speaks. We are a bi-weekly podcast exploring the weird and wonderful world of David Lynch's master hit TV series, Twin Peaks. We will be going episode by episode really discussing the legacy of Twin Peaks that it's left for television and pop culture that maybe you've never heard before. And if you're someone like me, who's actually seeing it for the very first time, um, I welcome you to dive in with me with no spoilers as we go along and I avoid all the Google researching in what's to come with fresh eyes and fresh ears and bask in the wonderfully weird yes and if you've seen the show before you can see it through the first time through janine's eyes it'll be like it'll be like you're watching twin peaks for the first time so grab a cup of joe grab some donuts and some cherry pie and join us on spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and welcome to twin speaks the other side of darkness is written performed and produced strictly as a work of parody the Other Side of Darkness is not endorsed by Castle Rock Entertainment, Sony Pictures, NBC, Warner Brothers Records, Rhino Records, Lynch Frost Productions, Twin Peaks Productions, CBS, or Showtime. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Seinfeld, the Seinfeld logo, and all Seinfeld characters, story elements, and intellectual property are registered trademarks and or copyrights of their respective trademark and or copyright holders. The makers of The Other Side of Darkness make no claims directly or indirectly of ownership to any elements held by these trademark and or copyright holders other than original characters, story elements, and other intellectual properties created specifically by the makers of this podcast. Musical elements referencing themes and motifs from the original theme music to Seinfeld and Twin Peaks are created expressly as works of parody and do not imply claims to ownership of said music.